love to introduce you first and foremost. So Lee Caldwell is a mathematician and an economist working on cognitive and behavioral theories and applying them to the world of economic decisions, pricing and marketing. So Lee is a co-founder and partner at the Irrational Agency, a group of narrative discovery experts committed to exploring consumer worldviews and perspectives. So Irrational Agency uses behavioral science, uh, things like system three technologies or methodologies rather, which I cannot wait to dive into, and many other innovative market research techniques to uncover non-conscious stories that drive consumer behavior. So Lee has also founded and built several companies since the mid-90s in everything from technology to economic consulting. He has also written extensively on economics and psychology on his blog, knowingandmaking.com. And if you're a reader like I am, check out his book titled The Psychology of Price, which we will link down below. And of course, myself, I am Sharday Torgerson, the creative and digital strategist at Incitrix in Saskatoon, Canada, and your host for the Stories of Market Research. So as I said, uh, Lee, I'm very humbled to have you as a guest on the podcast. You have a really unique background as an economist and a mathematician, but I am curious what drew you to perhaps behavioral science? Mm. So I, as you said, I started out as a mathematician. So I was, you know, as a kid, I grew up loving numbers, loving, uh, you know, algebra, like I'm sure uh, many listeners will not identify with that as uh, from their memories of childhood. But that was just what I loved since, you know, I was, uh, I was kind of one of these math kids who just loved that all that stuff and i like you know i went to university early when i was uh, 14 and i kind of studied mathematics just to try and understand the world and then i graduated from university i decided right this is the internet i've heard of this this is a this is the new big thing it was about 94 95 and um i thought right technology is going to rule the world i and i'm a mathematician i know about this i know how to you know create these tools and and build the stuff that is, needs to be built to uh, you know for this new world uh, and I started building it and I kind of realized quite quickly that just understanding technology and numbers and mathematics was not going to be enough uh, to be successful in in a business and uh, indeed in, in the world in general so uh, I, I started trying to figure out well I gotta understand people I gotta know people are buying my services people are using my software um what drives them what is it that uh, i need to understand about what makes them tick so that uh, i can you know give them value and it you know you you may have seen an episode of the big bang theory where sheldon cooper uh realizes that you know he wants to understand this thing called friendship and he starts sketching out on a whiteboard this theory about how relationships are formed and how people talk to each other and what value they provide to each other. And, you know, I wasn't maybe quite that bad, but that was me, like, trying to understand, okay, there's all this psychology going on, and I, the tools I have are, are mathematical. They're, you know, I understand economic theory because that's driven often by mathematics. Um, but applying that to try to understand human psychology, um, kind of economic theory doesn't really tell you about psychology so i was building these models i was uh, working out the equations of uh, of how people uh, you know how they're motivated and what their goals are and how they seek their goals and then i discovered this field of behavioral economics which was already tackling these questions and where uh, psychologists and scientists had been um, studying uh, how people 
don't quite behave according to the rules of logic, um, or at least mm-hmm. the rules that you know the 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 rules that economists say they should logically follow. Uh, and uh, I, I you know found this whole world of people already doing this research, and that was really the the big uh, moment for me to to find this community of people, this uh, this uh, research and literature, and then immerse myself into it, start going to the conferences and start uh, figuring out okay, there are actually ways that we can use mathematics and, and science to model human behavior, but real human behavior, not the, the theoretical version of, yeah. of behavior, the economic studies. <laughs> and, and maybe what marketers kind of push with personas to some degree. Just but uh, <laughs> yeah. even, yeah, I hear this a lot, actually, where folks will come from all different avenues and land in areas of behavioral science, uh, you know, working or wanting to know more about humans in, in terms of their nature, I think is quite interesting. I myself being in market research, uh, working on the marketing side of things, I think that's why I ended up naturally kind of landing in the position I did. I uh, just really enjoyed uh, learning more about human behavior and then ended up kind of working in a market research field as a result. So that's really cool. I wouldn't mind knowing a little bit more, Lee, like how did that, uh, you know, uh, lead you into founding uh, the Irrational mm. Agency? Yeah, so I had, uh, I, I started to apply some of this learning in uh, the world of pricing strategy and economic consulting. Uh, and so that was, uh, and that was around the time that I, I wrote the book that you mentioned, The Psychology of Price, because right. pricing was one of these things I'd always really wondered about as a, as a business owner and there was no good uh, you know there, there was no one there to tell you here's actually the real secrets of pricing uh, because it's not just supply and demand you know there's a lot more to it so i was in in that area um i was selling kind of consulting services but then i started to meet a few people in the market research world and i realized well there's there is this just as you said there's this whole group of people in business hungry to understand human behavior better uh, mm-hmm. and looking for better techniques to do it um, because at that time 2012 uh, you know there wasn't really a behavioral science movement within market research it was still pretty traditional so you would ask people questions you might send a survey you might uh, interview them do a focus group but pretty much it was it was a bit surface level so it was kind of here's uh, here's what we want to know we're going to write a questionnaire ask people and the answers will come back and we'll look take that data kind of as the signal of truth um so i uh, realized there was there was something that the behavioral science world could bring to the market research world uh, and uh, i i met my co-founder who was who had kind of came more from the market research world but had the same uh, idea knew about behavioral science from the other side uh, and and we created this uh, this agency together so the uh, uh i mean the name irrational agency uh is it kind of making fun slightly of ourselves and slightly of the, the behavioral world. So you get books like uh, Dan Ariely's book, Predictably Irrational, which was one of the uh, the popular behavioral science books uh, at that time. Um, and it's all around the idea that, well, people are irrational. Now, they are if you're an economist. If you're an economist, you say this is how people should behave, and they don't. So that's irrational. Well, of course, people do have reasons for their behavior. People actually behave that way um, because there are some, you know, in a way they have their own logic. There are human drives. There are psychological laws and universals and uh, and, and psychological patterns that uh, influence how people behave. So it's, it's not that we really think people are irrational, uh, but uh, that's kind of the 
uh, like the default positioning. Uh, <laughs> and so we uh, we start by saying, well, you know what? Let's understand the the rationality behind that irrationality. So if I may maybe build on this a little bit, I love I love that, and I think there's just there, there's such inherent value in learning about behavioral science and how it really does align with a lot of research methodologies that are currently being used. Um, I you know in the past even few podcasts we've been working with folks who are you know anthropologists uh, in in you know their career set and they're completely uh, involved in market research, but they come at it from a complete ethnography pro- approach. So I. I, I love hearing about these types of um, uh, areas that can be brought into research, these types of sciences that can be brought into research. So I came across actually an umbrella term, and please correct me if I'm wrong, um, but really we're talking, when we're talking about behavioral science, we're looking at, you know, the critical investigation of, of human action with things like psychology, cognitive science, uh, sociology, anthropology, as mentioned, neuromarketing, another big one that mm. we're hearing in market research, uh, and then, of course, economics. So, you know, this is a really compelling breadth of research. So what is it about maybe behavioral science consulting that can help, you know, businesses that are looking at these types of methodologies mm. and and really are looking to maybe uncover the advantages for their brand? Yeah, well, as you say, these there are a lot of different approaches within behavioral science and this is this because people have struggled with this uh, question for so long of understanding human behavior and they've used many different techniques and angles to approach that so um, you know the sociologists will look at uh, how the structures in society influence our behavior and we're we're off of course influenced by what's around us uh, neuroscientists look at how the the uh, chemistry and the geometry of the brain influences us and uh, and measuring behavior through uh, brain signals and um, and as you say economists which is kind of where I come from uh, look at things like the the signals that are sent by markets and by prices and how those how the information that we get from that uh, ultimately influences our behavior so behavioral science that I guess the breadth of it is very powerful in helping mm-hmm. companies to understand their consumers from all of those different angles because one method of study is never going to give you the um the whole picture um fundamentally um in behavioral science tells you that there are ways to get evidence about human behavior and those ways are not necessarily obvious uh they're not necessarily um basically people don't follow the simple dictates of, of any particular behavioral rule uh, and so the science is about finding the the evidence for how they do behave and how you can measure that and, and then from, from a brand's point of view how you can influence behavior because understanding uh, is one thing uh, but the uh, the point as, as Karl Marx didn't quite say is to change it is uh, the if you're a brand and you understand why people do this or you understand whether they'll buy your product. Well, that's only the first step. The next step is how can I make them, how can I influence them to buy more or to, to uh, carry out the behavior that's you know in my interest as a marketer, but of course, hopefully also in the consumer's interest. And so finding those levers that you can pull uh, is really essential to, uh, to a behavioral science approach. 
I love that. And you're you're literally speaking my language, even as a marketer. Um, there's so many of those techniques that we often uh, employ ourselves when we're looking at market research and, and especially understanding the consumer. And marketing research itself, I think, borrows uh, or rather employs a ton of behavioral science techniques. And I, I would argue even in the past two years, this is becoming a lot more prevalent in consideration to help consumer behavior is even shifted uh, in in a digital transformation aspect. Mm. Uh, we've always been online, uh, but I think there is a really unique, we're at a unique time in, in our society, as everyone has been kind of, you know, mentioning, but I, I do think behavioral science is really becoming a, a much stronger uh, point of interest between clients, as well as uh, how market researchers are uh, approaching consulting as well. So, uh, you know, on that note, what are maybe the types of behavioral science uh, methods? that you or even a rational agency specializes in? Yeah, well, just to, to pick a few examples, uh, one thing that has uh, come up a lot over the last 10 years is the idea of nudging. So there's a book called Nudge that was published in 2008. And uh, although that uh, many of the case studies, they were around government actions. So things like how could you get people to, uh, I don't know, donate more blood or to uh, save more money for their retirement. Uh, nudging is also a powerful set of techniques that companies can use. And a nudge is a way of changing people's behavior without having to spend a lot of money to change their incentives. The classic way of changing behavior, let's say you want to sell more soda, is cut the price. Um, but imagine you want to get people to buy more without having to uh, slash your margins. Well, you can use nudges, which are subtle psychological cues that you can change the way that uh, a choice is framed, um, show the price in a different way, for example, and uh, you'll be able to uh, to influence their behavior. So nudging has been one, one big theme and, and uh, using um, research techniques to design and measure uh, what nudges are most effective is uh, has been quite a, a powerful strand. Um, another is to look at uh, ways to uh, get under the surface of people uh, and people's responses using uh, different ways of measuring their answers and their reactions. So uh, implicit tools uh, is the, uh, the the best known example of that. You will see uh, research agencies using uh, implicit tools, measuring reaction times, um, for perhaps uh, showing stimuli that are, that are indirectly influence people's answers in order to measure things like their emotional reactions and the associations that they have. So that whole world of implicit tools um, has uh, has also been pretty important, uh, but what's now emerging, and what's uh, what we found really exciting, and what's um, been giving some really great answers to our clients recently, is something called narrative research. So narrative research, uh, as you can imagine from the name, is about stories, and what we have realized again looking at the the neuroscience research that's been coming out recently, looking at the cognitive science world, we've being able to see that uh, people are really driven by stories. Um, they, they have their, you know, their, their, the, the brain, the way we interpret the world in our brain is driven by the narratives that we have about that world. And those narratives could tell us things like, uh, I'm going to enjoy this product because I remember a story of when I bought it before and I enjoyed it. It could be um, something like, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to recycle 
my uh, my packaging because I have a story about uh, caring for the world and about the uh, the meaning of my actions within that story. Emerge both influenced by the scientific discoveries, but also what we're we're seeing in the commercial world. And ultimately, the if you can understand the stories that are inside the heads of your consumers uh, and how those stories translate into their behavior then uh, you're going to be in a very powerful position to create a brand that will uh, appeal to them. And so research methods that can uncover those stories, um, understand the structure of them, understand their impact on behavior, uh, <clears throat> are uh, becoming really, really powerful. And, uh, and that's kind of the area where we're, we're most active right now is, is that narrative research world. That's really cool. It's so neat, I'm sure, to be able to work with clients who want to work on innovative mm. cognitive behavioral studies um, and really great examples of such. Uh, you know, so what are maybe the types of narrative research tools do you mm. find work best with clients when it comes to maybe the more qualitative side of, of methodologies and techniques mm. where I'm sure narrative research, you know, heavily relies upon? Well, so there's, there is a qualitative side and a, a quantitative side, both, um, cool. which obviously appeal to, they, they work for different research questions, they appeal to different clients. Um, within the qualitative world, uh, it's about how you conduct interviews. So rather than having, a, a, you know, a, a typical list of questions, a kind of discussion guide, um, you're really relying on the, the participant to open up and tell you their stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you might start by sharing your own story, because that's really a, a great way to to build trust and to create that rapport and to to set the expectation. You know, I might tell a story to an interviewee of, you know, when I went uh, grocery shopping and and what happens and you know maybe I maybe I have some kind of funny story to uh, get people uh, engaged, um, and then I ask them to tell me their own stories. Um, and so we'll start with something quite open, um, and then then we might drill a bit further in. And we we you know you, first you you probably get a story that is a bit surface level so it's yeah i went to the grocery store and i parked my car and i um went to i went in and i bought some uh diet pepsi and then i i uh, went to the till and i paid and i came home so then you you get them to open up more you get them to tell tell more about what they were feeling about uh what's that behind that maybe uh what memories came to mind when you when you looked at the soda shelf um and uh, you, so you can drill into multiple layers of storytelling, um, and then uh, you can analyze the results uh, looking at the, the kind of story arc. So there's a there's a lot of uh, work that people um, you people who have um, done, for example, a storytelling workshop. You may have come across things like the the, the arc, the the three act structure, or the the hero's journey. Uh, these kind of um, different ways of telling a story. Well, those same things apply when you're hearing a story. Um, you can look for those arcs within the stories that consumers are telling you. And mm. every story is made up of uh, cause and effect steps. So every there's always a step and another step and another step, but everything happens because of the thing that happened before. So when someone tells you a story, they're revealing their picture of causality. They're revealing their beliefs about cause and effect in the world. And that's extremely important when you want to influence someone's behavior because you can see, well, if they have this view of what causes the uh, the world to work, then you know how to tap in to their um, their behavior and their mindset. That's so that's really the cool. yeah. yeah that's the that's the qualitative side. Um, now, qual research is, is is great and is is really important for you know especially in that exploratory stage 
but uh, you you need in many cases to validate or to um, mm -hmm. to be able to to robustly test your hypothesis with a wider group of people, and so what we've developed recently are quantitative ways of gathering and analyzing stories. Uh, so we might speak to say 2000 people, right, right now we're doing a study on health and well-being. We're speaking to uh, 2,600 consumers. Um, we're getting four stories from each of them. So we'll have about 10,000 in total. And we're going to distill those stories uh, down into the uh, the core elements the beginning the end the the turning points the um you know the who's the who's the hero or heroine of this story who's the uh, antagonist what are the the triggering events that cause that drive the story forward um we can do that partly through automated uh, grammar analysis uh, and partly through using having the respondents give us a guided word association um, response. So they will tell us a story and then they will, in a way, boil that down for us into a structure and tell us, well, here are the, the five words that summarize the five steps of my story. Um, and so that gives us this uh, a map of uh, what does this what does this category or this product or this brand look like to uh, those consumers? How can you how do those stories knit together into a coherent worldview? Um, and that's what we call the, the System 3 map. So this is a, a tool called System 3. Uh, behavioral science fans will remember, of course, System 1 and System 2, uh, mm -hmm. the uh, um, division kind of popularized by Daniel Kahneman in, in the book Thinking Fast and Slow. System 1 is the automatic unconscious reaction that we have to things. System 2 is the considered logical reasoning that we, you know, the mathematicians bring. But System 3 is the imaginative brain. Um, and that's what's not really covered by either system one or two. It's where our mind goes when we think, oh, what might happen if, what would it be like if I bought this product, if I drove this car, if I drank this soda? Um, what would it be like if I went on a date with this person? Um, what would uh, my experience be? What would my emotions be? You create a story in your mind, imagining the outcome of your choices. And that's system three, that's the, the, the imaginative part of the brain is powerful and is very important for certain uh, consumer decisions. Um, and so that's what this tool is designed to, to understand and uncover. I think uh, lots of folks, especially in the retail world, are going towards, um, you know, a lifestyle brand where they really want to want you as the buyer to focus on, you know, picturing what your life could be with with their product or service. And I do find uh, even as a marketer, when we're, you know, approaching, uh, trying to market these types of strategies, how often, again, that we're kind of alluding to a lot of the things that you're saying. So that the system three technology would be really interesting from the perspective of if you're a sports fan and you're you're asking them to to purchase a jersey jersey what would you be doing differently rather than asking them to purchase the jersey you're really feeding them perhaps you know everything that comes with it in terms of you know when you buy that jersey you're part of the community blah 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 right yep. so there's so many really cool things that can be uncovered from the lifestyle perspective on the marketing side of things when you're applying these types of research methodologies yep. So. Yeah, I mean, every every brand has its own different categories of story. Sports is totally. a, a, a wonderful example because every uh, sports event is a story in itself. You know, it has a beginning, it has an end, it has turning points, it has yep. excitement, it has tension, it has an unknown outcome. And 
the the reason that sports is so appealing to people is because it taps into those same storytelling um, elements in our in our brain, things that have evolved really over the last um, several hundred thousand years, uh, because humans mm-hmm. have developed into a, a narrative species, into a storytelling species. We we relied on stories um, to to survive in the early days of humanity. We still do. Um, you know, I uh, uh, if if my cousin could tell me the story of his cousin who was eaten by a saber-toothed tiger then uh, I might not have to go and (laughs) learn by trial and error about a saber-toothed tiger and uh, it could save many people's lives so the 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 brain well those of us who survived the saber-toothed tigers are the ones who were the people receptive to stories Uh, and uh, that's uh, that's absolutely uh, survived into today's humans. I, I love that. It's really, it's a stark example, but it's true. It's no different than touching touching the stove. Your sibling won't ever touch it, right? So exactly. uh, <laughs> carry on the tradition. But <laughs> I, I find storytelling in market research a, a an invaluable uh, part of the process. Uh, you know, ourselves at Insightrix, we really put a high value on ensuring that insights are uh, reported in a way that clients understand, but also take, you know, the the story behind it. You know, for many years, we've worked with um, experts like Ellen Eastwood. I'm not sure if you're familiar with her work, but she's a phenomenal uh, story storyteller in market research. And, and again, a, a great consultant on, on this type of work as well. And um, I, I find, you know, working with individuals who really understand the, the narrative side of research, you know, are, are making major impacts in, in mm. our industry, but also uh, within, within other so I, I know recently Irrational Agency won the MRS award for new consumer insights. So first, congratulations. It's a, it's a phenomenal award, uh, you know, and it's being recognized with combined efforts with a partner of yours, uh, mm-hmm. Gamesies. Mm-hmm. So would you mind maybe sharing a little bit about the project, perhaps what you learned and, you mm-hmm. know, the impact that it's having currently? Yeah, yeah. So that project, Gamesys, is an online gaming company. And they came to us with uh, a dilemma. Uh, and the dilemma was that, you know, they are, well, like there, there are several industries where companies have a tension between uh, wanting people to use their products, but not wanting them to use them excessively or irresponsibly. So, you know, alcohol would be another example. Um, in, the, in the gambling world, people want um, their customers to have fun uh, and to, to game, but they don't want them to uh, become addicted or to become, uh, you know, to, to get to the point of doing the damage to themselves. Um, and so the, the messaging in that industry was uh, kind of like, you know, small print at the bottom of a contract. It was warnings, but it was, you know, don't, you know, don't go too far or make sure that you're, you know, you're only using money you can afford. And then it was a little bit, um, it was, you know, a little, a bit like talking down to someone, a bit, a bit patronizing and a bit, um, well, basically it didn't land, it didn't resonate. Um, and so they wanted to understand how can we make these messages work better? Um, so we interviewed uh, a number of people who uh, were, were gamers across, you know, uh, many different uh, kind of levels of engagements, but also, you know, people who were very recreational gamers, had a lot of fun, and some people who had had real problems and who had, you know, lost tens of thousands or, or more of dollars um, or pounds. We were, this was in primarily in the UK, but, um, you know, mm-hmm. some people who would, who would 
break down crying, talking about how they, you know, they lost the home that they lived in. And we had to kind of listen to those stories, understand what was going on, be, of course, you know, responsible in the, in the research process as well, so that we're, we're not being exploitative of people's emotions, but we're, we're understanding and we're supporting them. And mm-hmm. we discovered that there are, uh, well, there are better ways to communicate these messages and better times to do it. So what the results of the research found that uh, there were uh, there was a tone of voice that we needed to to bring, and it had to be consistent with the tone of voice of the games themselves, because each game has its own style. You know, you you will uh, if you've used uh, one of those services, you'll see that uh, games have it's a bit like the you know the casual gaming on your phone. You could have very different styles of game. That you know, one of them might be a Candy Crush, which is very colorful and not much text. Another one might be a role playing game where it's it's a bit more you know combat and so on. Um, so you need to tune your messaging uh, to the same tone of voice and to be consistent. So that kind of when people are immersed in these games, that uh, it's consistent and it, it stands out for them. You also have to get it at the right time. So there are certain psychological triggers um, about that, that operate within gambling. Um, there's things like, you know, you've just lost a bit of money and you want to try and win and get it back. Or you just want some money and you're kind of on a high and you feel like, oh, I can now I can gamble the same money because it's free because I've won it. So it's it kind of is their money. So it doesn't matter if I lose it again. There's there's various um, psychological phenomena like that. And by understanding those phenomena and knowing the times that they happen, then you can place um, these responsible gaming messages in the right time as well as the right style. Um, and so. We uh, we worked with the client to to find these results, um, and then guess what? Just as we were delivering it, um, it was March, twenty twenty. So the uh, the lockdowns across the world came into place, and the um, people stuck at home behind their computers. The uh, prevalence of online gaming rocketed, um, and so you had a lot more people coming into the uh, into the sector, spending more money, and the uh, these messages were there just at the right time to uh, be able to help guide people and, and help protect people. Uh, and uh, so that's uh, uh, that's the story of, of the impact that um, we were able to help make there with, of course, um, the benefit of an engaged client who who themselves wanted to take a responsible approach. There are, you could imagine the temptation to just say, oh, we just take all the money that comes, but they wanted to do the right thing, uh, both for, because they're human beings working in, in this client and uh, and you know i'm sure it also um is good for companies to to in the long run make sure that they are uh being responsible that will you know they won't be perhaps regulated like i know that in in many parts of the of the us um there is no gambling because because of regulation and so um these companies want to make sure they can do it in a responsible way so they don't end up in in a situation where it is banned yep I do believe we are in a region in Canada as well, where it's slowly becoming a, uh, uh, being positioned by the government as something that's not as bad as it used to be. But even five years ago, you couldn't even bet on sports. Mm -hmm. So uh, yeah, so things are changing, but I think as well as recognizing the responsibility that these organizations have to ensure such and um, transparency is big, right? So I think using market research to, to ensure that you're advocating for much more transparent organization is is again super invaluable so to utilize these types of research uh to to tell the real story i think is is such a cool technique 
cool. Yeah, yeah. I would say transparency is actually one of these um, can be a trap, um, and this is oh. what this is what happened in the uh, in much of the finance industry. Um, is that uh, organizations, banks, lenders, they were transparent, but transparency um, <laughs> can mean just throwing information at you. It can mean you know I I give you twenty pages of every possible detail about my product and about the the loan that you're taking or the interest rate or what could happen or what could go wrong. But, you know, you're not going to read the the bottom of the 18th page realistically. Uh, And so actually transparency was thought to be the solution uh, by uh, traditional economists, uh, but actually you, um, you, that needs to be supported with um, an understanding of how to make the information land. Uh, what are the important parts? What are the, what are the pieces of information that are going to matter to people? And uh, how can you frame those so that they notice and understand what they, as an individual, need to notice and understand? Wow. So, yeah, transparency can almost be uh, used as a, you know, a, a club to try to, yep. um, a to solve a problem. even to some yeah. degree. So. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> no, so, I, so. I, yeah. Hmm. That's interesting. I think, yeah, there. Wow, I think uh, to turn the table, that's such a, a unique way to look at it. I think PayPal is kind of an example of that, where you, you know you get sent their legal agreement every so often. In reality, you're probably not going to read what they are changing, but to them, it's uh, you know being transparent. Those types of engagements with uh, your consumer. You're right. Yeah. I think there is a level of that. As a sophisticated shopper myself, I can sometimes really read into a lot of those things, and maybe. I don't even take the time to be, you know, ensuring that I'm digesting this information because I'm being bombarded. We're in, you know, what we call the information era. So I think what you guys are doing at a rational agency is quite interesting in that, you know, we recognize that even ourselves, market research firms, you know, behavioral science consultants, you know, there's a lot of information that can go into the reporting. You know, when we're when we're working with huge data sets, mm. you know, we're pulling primary, we're pulling secondary, we're working on IDIs and we're we're doing these recorded interviews. There's so much data that we pull from being able to take that and, and drill it down to, to the narrative, to the story, I think is, is a really unique skill set. So maybe to transfer into that a little bit, Lee, you know, Mm. from the business side, if you were, you know, say you're talking to an up and coming market researcher who really wants to get into this side of the industry, you know, what would you suggest if someone wanted to learn more about these types of techniques? Yeah, well, I, I was thinking about this just recently because we, you know, we're recruiting uh, right now, and I, I would love to have six more people on on the team <laughs> to to do this narrative work. So uh, and, and do you know do get in touch if you if you're interested. Um, but I, absolutely, I I realized um, something. I actually I, I'm just writing a a post uh, about it, which you, it will probably be out before the the podcast is out, so you uh, re- listeners might be able to to find that. Um, sure. Market research, quant market research does combine these two skills that are often very, very separate. You know, you you have the mathematical quantitative skill, you have the creative storytelling skill, and you need to have you need to have both. You as a quant researcher, you need to be able to um, write a questionnaire, understand the logic of the, the routing of the questionnaire, be able to uh, read the data tables, uh, understand the base sizes, know what the uh, what's a significant difference. You have to speak that language and you need to be able to turn that into a, a message that will land with a client that is meaningful and that can help them bring about change. And that's, you know, it is such a, a great uh, and 
it's an unusual combination of skills and it's brilliant when somebody can bring those two together so i would say um the if you're if you are um a researcher who who wants to make sure you're really great at that um you know the the quantitative skills in a way you probably you probably know how to learn those right there's there's a bit more of a a recipe for how you learn the quantitative skills um but the storytelling part you really got to put yourself in the mind of a, of a client you need to um if you can go work client side for a while um if you can't then at least you know read the wall street journal and the financial times uh, uh spend as much time as you can talking to clients and listen to their stories uh, about what's important to them and the business challenges they face and then just be really focused on translating that quantitative uh, data into the story that's that's meaningful to clients you won't always get it right first time that's you you'll iterate with a client to to get it right um mm-hmm. but in a way that's the that's the the storytelling side so the uh and and that's where uh you know good researchers have over the last 10 years started to get good at that storytelling and that is taking the data and presenting it to their stakeholders uh, in in a narrative form but what the other thing we're talking about is story hearing so that's about listening to the stories of consumers so the the skills there are partly about just about asking partly about learning how to prompt people to be open Um, and you will learn that from having conversations and from telling and asking for stories but then you can translate those skills into say questionnaire design so there's quite a you know there's subtle techniques to if you're if we're like writing a questionnaire i mentioned the 2600 people that we're gathering stories from we have to ask the questions in the right way to get them to to open up to us because otherwise people will if you just say uh, in a survey tell me a story about when you went grocery shopping someone's going to type in six words to say, you know, I, I, I parked and I bought my, my groceries and I went home. Um, <clears throat> you have to take them through um, the, a process to get them to open up in the right way. So that is, it definitely uh, is great to be qual and quant because then you, you will be able to borrow techniques from qual conversations into your uh, questionnaire design. Um, but also I would say um, start to understand some of the theory of narrative. So you'll find uh, books, there's a, there's a great book called The Science of Storytelling um, and by, I think, Will Starr. Uh, I can mm-hmm. send you that. We, we can put the link in. Um, I've read it, actually. <laughs> oh, well, perfect. Brilliant, yeah. Um, and uh, there's there's a number of other books that will look at uh, and, and papers and, and, and websites that will tell you about the structure of stories so that you can start to recognize when I hear a story, um, what's happening here? You know, where is the uh, where's the opening? Where's the inciting incident? Or where's the turning point? What are the obstacles? Who's the antagonist? Um, what's the resolution? Um, and and what's driving the action? Uh, and you'll you'll recognise that even when a, a respondent tells you a simple story about when they went grocery shopping, but this time it's not just I parked and I bought my groceries. It's uh, I parked and I couldn't find what I was looking for, and I was really um, I, I was really desperate because I had to get home because the kids are coming back from school and uh, the the in-laws are coming around and I've got to cook that. I want to cook this one recipe that I know they really love. And, and the thing is out of stock and I couldn't find the alternative. And so I, uh, and this is what, what I did about it. Uh, and this was the, the resolution. And that kind of story is, it's still simple, but it, it reveals a lot more about how people shop than um, something very short. Uh, and so, you want to get people to 
to uh, tell you those stories and you want to have the right tools to analyze and break down those stories and then turn that into um, quant data that you can say, okay, 2000 shoppers told us these things mm -hmm. and therefore we can draw some really strong conclusions. It's interesting. So what I'm hearing too, the questionnaire design is super, super important to this process as well. Um, do you do you often change up the questionnaire design within the project or is this a question questionnaire that you guys kind of run with throughout mm. the entire uh, project? Do you... Mm. Uh, and and maybe I'll restart that, Lee, because where sure. what I was hearing a little bit, and again, just from my own inherent interest, uh, <laughs> but uh, from a questionnaire design perspective, is this something that you guys build right from the start? Mm. Well, we have, uh, I guess we've learned some techniques uh, that work pretty well in designing these right. questionnaires. So one of them is that we um, kind of do a storytelling exchange. So we'll start within the quest, even within a questionnaire by telling a story. So we'll say, here's a story of, uh, you know, when I went shopping or when, uh, you know, uh, one of your fellow shoppers went to the supermarket. Um, and that's, that's a way to get people to open up. Then we, we give people some prompts. We say, so imagine you're in this situation and here's a challenge you face, or here's mm -hmm. uh, a goal that you have. Um, and uh, they, that, that kind of opens them up to, to be a bit more creative and, and not just give you the, the basics. So we will, we have those techniques, but generally every, uh, the way that those play out for a different client, uh, and a different scenario is, is different because, you know, we might one, one week, we might be researching soda, uh, one week, it might be, uh, TV viewing, um, one week, it might be, uh, people who are taking diabetes medication. Um, mm -hmm. of course, all of those, the stories that will come up are different and the prompts are different. So there are, there are repeatable um, skills that you can learn, uh, but every questionnaire does tend to be uh, a little bit different, except I guess when we're doing a tracking um, study. So sometimes we will track the narratives and say, we want to repeat this every quarter. Uh, mm -hmm. And we, we want to say, are people saying something different about sustainability today than they did six months ago? And then you want to make sure that you're giving, you're asking in the same way. So that, that of course is a repeatable questionnaire. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I, I think, again, questionnaire design is such a unique skill set uh, in the research industry. And, and, and it's expanding uh, more and more in consideration to the fact that uh, I think you nailed the point. Um, people are engaging differently. People uh, in effort to get that story out of folks to some degree, you got to talk to them like they're human and not really kind of play the Q&A aspect. Even when you're filling out an online survey, I'm sure there's a lot more that you can do within the questionnaire design to ensure that you're really eliciting uh, the response rather than getting an answer to the question. Um, you know, myself being a background, I, I a former journalist, and that was, you know, my, my initial career path and then landing in marketing. I, I see a ton of parallel in, in even the knowledge that, uh, you know, we were, we were kind of taught in terms of how to, you know, bounce techniques off of folks in terms of getting the real story out of people mm -hmm. and, and really learning. And you mentioned learning on the client side of things 
things, getting putting their shoes on, getting to understand uh, their uh, industry, their organization. Sometimes that takes a, a week of diving into, you know, their their world to some degree before even really nailing down that questionnaire. So I, I think a lot of that has a really great parallel in, in the the work that journalists do. Storytellers, natural natural storytellers in the world, right? So yeah. I think this is this is a really cool um, segment for me to be a part yeah. of because I, I see a lot of parallels. So. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I I love the variety of different backgrounds that people come to the research yeah. industry with, and um, I haven't heard many people who were journalists, but I think that's absolutely right. Is a that's a brilliant um, kind of set of parallels, and you know, I've, I've met a couple of people who are anthropologists uh, and uh, people who uh, you know people who studied uh, English literature. Um, and, and you can yeah. see, of course, some of those different, um, elements that come forth in, in the way people do research. Uh, yep. but yeah, maybe, maybe if they, we keep hearing about how journalism is in crisis and all the journalists are being laid off, maybe we need to recruit them as, as researchers instead. I, I, I hate to say we're, you know, our backgrounds are often our secondary backgrounds are in research and statistics usually. So mm. we're, we're not the worst pool to choose from. Uh, mm. Granted, we, we love the comms area of things. So even just information mm. design, I think that's where I have my own unique interest in, in market research is being mm. able to, to take a lot of this knowledge and put it into something a lot more visual. Um, you know, I love doing data visualization. It's a big part of uh, my gig mm. at Insightrix, but I think that what it drills down to is taking taking large, you know, data sets that, you know, are really hard to kind of, for the average person to really take an insight from, uh, mm. drill that down and make it, uh, you know, something that they can take something away from without having to really read into it. So, um, yeah, so I think maybe that's probably why I ended up on the marketing side and mm. not so much the research. We're the creative mm. and we, <laughs> we trust, we trust the folks on the quantitative side with the numbers. So, mm. <laughs> but um, yeah, I think I, I you know, we kind of nailed all all the the avenues of narrative research mm. lean i think even just giving some advice on the business side is quite unique as well um i think we're at a point in time uh as industries as agencies uh you know high tides raise all ships and i'm hearing a lot that uh competition or uh, rather uh collaboration is the new competition mm. so whenever we can work with folks like you have these conversations share them with our listeners which yeah. are often researchers themselves i think it, it really is uh important so thank you so much for your time lee uh, i'll leave maybe the floor open to you is there anything perhaps we would like to share with our listeners finding out more about the work that you do uh, sure. Yeah. Well, just two things I'd love to say. One is, uh, if you're interested in finding out what an example of narrative research looks like, because I can imagine that it can be a bit abstract to just hear about it, um, totally. go to our website, irrationalagency.com. You'll see on there a link to something called Hidden Stories of Sustainability, uh, which is a report that we publish. So uh, click on that and you'll be able to get a copy uh, of the, the preview of that. You can see what that, uh, what that research looks like. Uh, and the other thing is just... Um, we would love to have people come and work with us on this. I'd love to have, uh, you know, I think I said earlier, half a dozen new researchers joining our team, uh, doing and learning about narrative research. So please, if you're interested, connect me on LinkedIn, uh, go to our website, and uh, hopefully we'll be working with a few, of, uh, a few of your listeners in the near future. Awesome. That is really cool. We'll have all the information down in the podcast episode on podcast.insightrix.com. Again, I thank you so much for your time today, Lee. And I look forward to seeing what narrative, uh, what you're working on with narrative research in the future. So thanks so much. Wonderful to meet you.